When a story is being told, empathy is amplified. The storyteller and the story listener, their brains are firing in the same order and in the same way. And I mean, I don't know how much more persuasive you can be than <laughs> controlling someone else's brain in which they process information. Hello and welcome to Franklin Covey's On Leadership series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve as your weekly host and moderator. Today is a fun day because we have an uber cool, both talented and cool person joining us today, the famed author, storyteller, narrator, uh, artist, scientist, researcher, persuasion expert, Nancy Duarte, joining us from her office in California. Nancy, welcome to On Leadership. It's really good to be here and thanks for having me. Super excited to have you back to um, our series. You know, the finest compliment I can pay you, Nancy, really came from our CEO, Bob Whitman, just two days ago. You know, Franklin Covey, I think it's fair to say, knows a thing or two about presentations and communications, right? I mean, we have certified close to 200,000 client facilitators around the world. They teach wow. our content back in their organization. They use our presentation materials. We have probably in excess of four to 500 expert consultants that work for us that are teaching our content, presenting around the world. But just literally two days ago in an executive team meeting, Bob Whitman, who's working on an especially important project for the company, leans over to me and says, you know, Scott, I think we gotta get Nancy Duarte involved in this. And so I, for a CEO who does, doesn't love to hire consultants any more than the next one does, I thought what a nice compliment to share to you that Bob is so invested in your talent expertise that he wants to bring you in. So welcome back to Franklin Covey. Tell him thanks. <laughs> I will, I will. So let's talk today about uh, all things communication. Nancy, uh, Duarte, the firm that you founded and, and are, the, are the lead partner in in California is really an expert on a couple of things, right? They're an expert on persuasion, is how to, you know, how to fine tune your message and communicate your passion to move your audience. You're an expert on communication, on presentation, you know, things as tactical as your slide deck. Will you take a few minutes to talk about you know, how you came to where you are today? How did the firm start? How did your passion development? And what is the type of work your, your, your organization does now with clients? Yeah, interesting. We started as a technical illustration firm here in the Valley. There was just tons of technical illustrating to do. That was kind of my husband's foray. Um, but pretty quickly, we landed Apple as one of our biggest clients. And people don't realize Apple was one of the first companies to hook a computer up to a projector. Um, that was really hot technology in the late 80s. And so from there, uh, a, a big layoff happened actually there in 92. And my client base kind of scattered like sleeves like seeds across and we, we got all kinds of um, new business from that. So I, I kind of like to say presentations found me. I loved getting up and speaking and presenting um, and we grew and, and grew and grew. And we started with the visuals um, and then uh, through a deep body of research around story and storytelling and using story to persuade. Um, and now we actually also do delivery coaching. Um, so we'll either write and produce your presentation for you or we will teach you how to do it for yourself as a new tool in your, in your tool belt. Um, we, stay, we stay real busy. The people that are here love uh, the seat that we have at the table with some of the best brands in the world. So it's been, it's been quite fun. <laughs> and Nancy, you're the author or co-author of numerous books, all of which are up in our studio. So you have a place of honor amongst some of the greatest authors of all time. So 
welcome back uh -huh. to the studio as well. Thanks. Whether it be Slideology, Resonate, Illuminate, you wrote this seminal book out of the Harvard Business Review series mm -hmm. called Persuasive Presentations. Let's kind of start there and get tactical. You know, I got to think everyone that's watching or listening today is making some type of presentation. Let's put the visuals aside for a moment and talk about the oral part of communication. All of us are trying to convey a story of some sort. Will you kind of reorient us into the, the science and the art of great storytellers? What are some of the great storytellers have in common throughout the ages that we today as business professionals, whether we're giving a you know, three minute or 30 minute speech should kind of cleave towards? Yeah, you know, uh, every story is about a transformation of sorts, where there's this likable hero who goes through this really tough time and then is changed from the whole thing. And what's interesting about a story structure is it builds tension and then releases it. And that's what we like. We like that cathartic release. So what I did is I took, um, there's literally a book called The 100 Greatest Speeches of All Time. I, I analyzed all those speeches and tried to see if there was a rising of tension and releasing it, similar to how um, a story has, and there is. Um, most presentations follow, or well, the greatest speeches, and now a lot of presentations do this, where they have the, the building of tension around the gap between our current realities and the future that the leader is trying to drive people toward. So structurally, a great presentation would use a story principle where you um, contrast the realities of what is with this dynamic future of what could be with your idea adopted as a structural device it moves back and forth creating that tension and releasing it um, ultimately ending with uh, what we call the new bliss which is this beautiful picture of the world in the future with your idea adopted and so um, there's the story framework that's there in the greatest um, presenters as they've been adopting it we see incredible results we had a guy um, say in the new york times he made 500 million more dollars using this methodology which is nice right so there is this um, beautiful cadence and also um, people understand contrast they they can see differences our brain is wired for that um, and so that's um, where this methodology has been very powerful. In fact, Nancy, I might argue you're one of the kind of the leading scientists on, if you will, the science behind giving yeah. speeches and presentations. For the, for the senior leader out there that has to both give presentations and speeches, I'm assuming there's some difference, difference in that. Are, are there some key principles that you might impart to us beyond the ones you just did around the differences between giving a speech and maybe making a presentation? Yeah, you know, uh, both in both uh, you're persuading. A lot of times um, speeches are sometimes teleprompted. To me, the only difference between a speech and a presentation is the um, use of visual aids. Most times a presentation will have some sort of presentation software. Outside of that, I actually consider them both the same thing. They should be inspiring, entertaining, and they're mostly usually persuasive. So I think as leaders, our job all the time is persuading. And in many ways, we are spoken word experts in the sense that um, uh, your quote speech might actually be a one-on-one -on -one where you have to do a, an impassioned plea. Like it's, it's pretty hard to point to a movement that didn't happen with someone doing a brilliant job at an impassioned plea. And that's a lot of times what a, what a presentation is. It's an impassioned plea mm -hmm. to create action. Mm -hmm. And we have to be really good at the spoken word because by the time 
you're doing the spoken word, you've probably spent a lot of money in advertising to get the right people into the room together. So being able to create an incredibly beautiful human connection, an incredibly lovely heart connection, uh, authenticity, all those things can happen when you're in the room where it's happening. And uh, I, there's some power in the spoken word. It's just so beautiful. And when it's done well and done right, it really moves people to action. Nancy, we'll move to the power of visuals in a few minutes. Let's spend some time on storytelling. Arguably, you are one of the, the world's you know, leading authorities on constructing a great story. I don't know if this is maybe accurate or inaccurate, but I found you know, you're kind of a really great storyteller or you're not and you're learning to become one. But I also find those that can tell stories sometimes even take it too far, right? They become dependent on their stories. We have some consultants in our company that know our content well, but they are also known as sometimes, you know, maybe pair a story or two back. What are some mistakes that people make as they're moving to become an expert storyteller? Anything that, anything that you coach your clients on around be cautious around stories? Yeah, um, what's great about storytelling, and one of the one of the reasons leaders struggle to adopt storytelling is because the inherent nature of a story is that there's this likable person, a lot of times it's the executive, who goes through these challenges, roadblocks, hardships, and because of those hardships and roadblocks, they're changed in the process. So there's not a lot of people who will genuinely and authentically get up and tell a story in its true format, which means, hey, life is hard, I struggled, I'm here to help you because I overcame. And there's not a lot of people that will just go there in a really meaningful way. And the ones that do um, get really great results. So we work with you know, top execs and there was this one exec who kept getting feedback that he was coming across as arrogant because he was super self-congratulatory about his success he'd had at the previous company. And every time he spoke, it's like, oh, at the last company, I, you know, chest beating, I'm awesome, I'm awesome. And so we talked him into just, just saying one small anecdote about how when he showed up at this new place, he found a skunk work project and he made a big bet on it, amplified it, and it was a mistake. And it was super simple. It was just him saying, I've messed up because all they'd heard was kind of chest beating from him before. The outpouring of affection to him, the outpouring about that being the best talk he'd ever given, the outpouring of them feeling more connected to him was astounding. And it is amazing the power of just telling a simple story. Now, I haven't heard that many people that overstory. Um, I know sometimes in my own exec meetings, we're all storytellers. So what could be just a simple update turns into a full on dramatization where we're acting and using props and <laughs> making each other laugh hysterically. So in some ways that makes me a little unproductive. Um, but I think a story told well, you, you can't have enough of those. So I think some people um, don't actually use the proper story frameworks if you're not really intrigued and listening to them. We, it, this, um, yeah, a couple months ago, I was invited by one of the top, top television networks. The chairman of the top television network asked me to come in and teach his leaders how to use story to lead. Now they're writing some of the best fiction on TV and producing it and directing it, but they didn't know how to use stories to lead. Um, so there, there is a real magic to when a leader really pulls on the foundational method of storytelling. And that means you have to tell personal stories from a place of conviction, stories from a place where they've transformed you and therefore in the telling, you transform others. Nancy, what's the connection, if any, between the neuroscience 
behind um, you know, empathy and buy-in and connection and how people tell stories and make presentations to persuade. What have you learned about that? Yeah, we've done, there's a lot of brain science. Now that we can hook fMRI machines up to the brain while a story's being told, we can actually see what the brain is doing. So um, there's several things that's happening. One of them is when a story is being told, empathy is amplified and your brain, all the sensing parts of the brain are firing. Um, another thing that happens is the storyteller and the story listener, their brains are firing in the same order and in the same way. And I mean, I don't know how much more persuasive you can be than <laughs> controlling someone else's brain in which they process information. Um, the other thing is, is that people will suspend their analytical side and be opened up to new ways of believing and behave, behaving um, while a story is being told. That you can see the judgmental analytical side um, powering down while a story is being told. So there's a whole lot of brain um, of brain science that's happening right now around um, why stories are powerful. As you're talking, I'm thinking about some of the best most persuasive speeches I've seen given by others and some of them least ineffective. You know, every year I'm privileged to go to the World Business Forum, right, which is an event every year around nice. the world, but it's anchored in Manhattan in the U.S., usually in the fall. And there's two days of just nonstop presentations, you know, usually between 45 minutes and an hour. You know, business mm -hmm. titans, CEOs, politicians, people of influence. And I think the best one I've seen, I won't name him, he had no slides at all. He just spoke about the story of his journey from his heart and it was just riveting for literally an hour. And the worst I've seen was, was actually a female CEO of a Fortune 50 company and her entire speech was predicated on the cadence of her PowerPoint. And you could see her advance the slide and then tell the next point and then advance the slide. And I, and I, I wished you had coached her because you could tell her genius, her competence, her empathy for this journey was there, but it was anchored in the cadence of her slides. What kind of coaching do you give people who are, are speaking at all levels on how to integrate visuals into their speech, but it not becoming you know, the, the, the anchor, if you will, that ties them down? Yeah, I, I love that you gave an example that your favorite one didn't have the visuals in it. I, what happens is when there are no visuals is you rely more on your word choices, you rely more on how you frame things up to make it more beautiful. Like you have to actually with your mouth paint a picture of what you're trying to get them to see, which is so lovely. It sounds to me like the gal that you're talking about, what she did is she was using her slides as a teleprompter. Yeah. And that's a mistake. Like you can actually go up to TED.com and look at Sheryl Sandberg's TEDx talk. She had no slides behind her, but when the camera passes by her backside, which is lovely, <laughs> you can actually see that on the floor, her comfort monitor has PowerPoint bulleted slides. So she was using PowerPoint on her comfort monitor to remember what to say, but never projected them behind her. And that's another thing. Like, I bet you if that gal's visuals were just turned off, her speech would have been perceived as better. It's yeah. People can only process one stream of information. They'll either be reading your slides or they'll be listening to you. They won't be doing both. So if her slides were dense and it was more like a teleprompter, she lost her audience, which is unfortunate. Well, Nancy, to that point, do you advocate when we're giving presentations or speaking and we have perhaps a strong dependence on a, on a deck, should we black the deck out when we're talking and come back to it? What's the right sort of back and forth yeah. to listen That's versus watch? 
Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that um, presentation software, while it's in slideshow mode, if you hit the B key, it turns your slides off. And then once you advance or hit the B key again, or you can hit W, B is black, W is white, and it just turns your slides off, which is kind of nice. So um, we recommend that your presentations be what we would call cinematic or conceptual in nature. It's the backdrop of the stage that you're on. So the focus should be on the presenter, on what's coming out of their mouth, on how they're using their body to convey what they're trying to convey in a very passionate and empathetic way. And your slides are there to support you. Well, that's a lot to ask, like to have some conceptual graphic back there that you need to say three tight paragraphs to is hard to do. So we do recommend that you go into, um, there's a slideshow setting where you can go into presenter view. And what'll happen is your slides will be cinematic behind you, but you'll have a comfort monitor there, or you could even have your, your actual, um, um, sometimes I've had to bring my actual laptop on the stage. So while I'm advancing, I can see my notes. It's a lot to ask someone to remember every single thing to say to cinematic slides. Um, a lot of TED presenters will use three by five cards or, or keep prompts in front of them or um, put some just trigger words on a, a podium and stuff like that. Um, I use a trigger word, one or two um, slides that if I, if I need to remember what the transition is for what I'm about to say, I'll put in just a small phrase um, so that I can remember each transition into the next um, part. There's, there's no um, best practice on how many slides you do or do not use. You can have a lot of slides with just one word on them. It's just a matter of not putting a lot of dense words on every single slide because you'll lose your audience. Well, that was my next question. I was going to ask you, are there any rules of thumb to say for every 15 minutes, you ought to have X number of visuals? Any advice on that at all? Or did you just give it to us? Yeah, no, that's a really good, I, I get that a lot. There was this one time I spoke at this luncheon and I did it for free out of generosity. And they were like, send your, send your deck ahead of time. You have 40 minutes. So I sent my deck ahead of time and it had 300 slides in it. And so they um, call me back and they're like, oh, everything's changed. You have 15 minutes. And so I said, okay. So I cut out a bunch and sent my next deck back. And so I get up to speak and they're like, okay, you have 40 minutes. I'm like, no, you said I had 15. And they're like, oh, well, you had too many slides. So we thought if we told you you had 15, <laughs> you would actually take 40. So you build <laughs> them, you build them, right? <laughs> yeah, so I was like, okay, well, I'm going for 15 because that's what I rehearsed. So I spoke for 15 and then did the rest as a Q&A. But there is no real rule of thumb. I have a cadence and my, my slides, part of what I'm conveying are models and patterns and analysis. So I, I have them very simple um, and you get them in a matter of a second or two. Um, they're not complicated, but it moves quicker. One of the reasons I use a lot of slides is that you, every time somebody sees something move in a room, our, our reptilian brain kicks in and they have to process whether they, it's a fight or flight thing, right? They need to process, oh, slide moved, am I in danger? And your brain just does it. <laughs> so by having more slides than less where you're clicking through, um, you're actually re-engaging visually the audience over and over and over. So I tend to use a lot of slides, um, but not everyone can carry that off. So it, a lot of it has to do with your own personal preference. Like I've seen people talk to ten, talk for 10 minutes or tell an entire story to one slide. So there is no rule. Um, there is no amount. It has a lot to do with the presenter's style and what they need, how much they need to remember to trigger what they're trying to say. So there's no really rule around how many or how few. I bet there's some rules around what goes on them. This is yeah. your expertise. Give us the top things you know that we 
don't do well out there around what goes on the actual slide itself? Yeah, I think uh, the big thing is you should only have one idea per slide. That's where people mess up. They try to convey 12 things on one slide. So narrow it down to one central theme per slide, and that'll help simplify it right away. Um, also turn words into pictures. People will remember spatial relationships really well. So instead of having five bullets, maybe one of those bullet points is, was this really central thing and all the other things hang off of that one central thing. Well, then make it a diagram that like radiates from the core instead of just having lists of bullets on there. So people will remember spatially the placement of different things. Um, and so that's important. And people do are, are drawn to the human form. So if you can show humans uh, and how human flourishing is better because your product or what you're selling, um, that really helps too, is to have them visualize and see themselves in your story. Because a lot of people present and they feel like, oh, I'm presenting, I'm the presenter, I'm really important in this room. In fact, I might be the most important person in this room. <laughs> a lot of presenters will feel that way. And you have to change your mindset to understand that you're actually there to get your audience unstuck and that the audience is the hero in the room. So you need to defer to them and be bringing things of value to them and not being so focused on yourself. So every picture you show, every slide you show needs to be in service of getting them unstuck. Everything else is superfluous to me. Nancy, talk a bit about font and, and, and color and size and such. How do we know when we're designing your own deck? And I imagine the vast majority of people haven't yet made it to the senior level and they're not yet hiring you, but they will someday. Until that happens, what are some more tips around words and font on the screen? Yeah, we have a bunch of rules around that. Like if the font has to be less than 24 point, you've probably created a document. Um, at about 24 point, you start to lose the people um, in the back of the room. Um, you can have things animate and build and layer, um, and that makes a really big difference, but you really can't go much smaller than that. I remember one of the first slides I made, um, the word was big. It was just the word big, and I made sure that the B, the I, and the G filled up the whole slide, and, and sometimes we forget that you have the entire space. Um, then I just saw a presentation that was super effective where they just had a, sm a single small word right in the center of the slide. And, and it, it, was a, it was about hospital care. And it felt right to have like lots of white space and this one simple kind of lonely feeling word right in the middle. So it all depends on what you're wanting your audience to feel. That's where font choices, font size, color background. I just, I, I watched this presentation and I was like, wow, that was the right choice to have very simple, single, tiny words right in the middle. So it just it, it just kind of depends on who you're talking to. We, um, we have a rule of thumb here, say if your laptop is 13 inch or 15 inch size, you would step that, however big your laptop or your screen is, you need to step that many feet away. So if you have a, a 15 inch um, Screen, screen, you should put it in slideshow mode and step back 15 feet. And that's a good rule of thumb for you to know if the person in the back of the room is going to be able to see what's on your slides. Bigger is better usually. Nancy, you're kind of like a restaurant critic, right? When you go to yeah. see other people <laughs> present and you leave and say, now that was an excellent speech or presentation. I feel unstuck. I feel moved. What's happened? What are some of the maybe four or five things that have happened when Nancy Duarte says, I'm unstuck because of that person. 
Well, a lot of people, when it's really bad, a lot of people will come up and be like, oh my God, could you get past that? And I had to get to a place where if the visuals were cruddy, I couldn't care. <laughs> because right then, you know, I, I have to just turn that off sometimes, shut my eyes and really engage with what they're saying. If I feel when someone's talking or I believe when someone's talking, like I'm like, oh my God, I believe what you're saying. I believe what you're saying is true. And I believe what you're saying is just, and I believe what you're saying is right. Then I get really excited, especially if it's something that's been illuminated in me that I had not considered before. That's when, that's when I'm um, most, that's my favorite kind of presentations. And then if I feel, if I laugh or cry, if I physically react to someone's talk and my body is like reacting, I um, kind of almost outside of my uh, conscious conscience self, conscious self. I really like that when I, when I feel the talk. You also mentioned earlier that there may be a case when your deck became a document. Is there a tipping point when you need to know, you know what, that's a handout. It's not a slide or it's a card or a tool of some sort, anything to go on there? Yeah. You know, what's funny is a lot of times people will send a dense presentation slide ahead of time to get the speaking gig. Salespeople will send some sort of read ahead. Then they get the actual moment in the room and then they send a follow-up that's usually more dense. And I, I have an online book that's free that we're actually turning into a real book book. It's called Slide Docs. So they can go to slide doc or slide docs.com and it talks about using this as a tool, about 80%, I realized, of the usage of these presentation tools in corporations isn't for cinematic slides. It's the, it's the poor man's version of Adobe Illustrator or Photoshop. You know, it's a, it's a visual design tool to help you get a message across. So whenever you have something important to convey and you can't be there in person in the room, pack a bunch of content on your slides, put as much on there that lets this document travel around without the help of a presenter. It's fine to do that. Just don't stand up on a stage or stand up at a meeting and, and verbalize the whole thing. What we've been doing here is you send two or three pages ahead of time. Jeff Bezos is kind of famous for a six page memo. And what you do is we send it ahead as a pre-read, everyone reads it and we use the entire meeting time to drive decision-making around it. So it, there's just all these different ways you could work using presentation software um, in its most efficient way. But I don't think people should run out and learn the professional page layout software just because they have something internal that's dense to pass around, they should be given permission to make their dense documents in presentation software, but just don't present them. Uh, when clients hire you, do you ever coach them not to create visuals and just tell the story or give the speech extemporaneously from the heart? Is there ever a time when that makes more sense than having visuals to support it? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, we've been doing that more. So we're getting a lot more content plus coaching kind of projects where they're not even needing the slides. There's, there was a heavy I hate slides movement and meetings suck movements. And so I think um, visuals kind of got lost in the crossfire. We, we worked with an actor one time who had a fitness show and he wanted to go on the road and tell his own story. And as we listened to it, he, he was so attractive, right, and so thin that, you know, the people on the show were like, well, you don't understand. You don't understand what I've been through. Yet he had, he'd never told the world that he'd had a drug addiction problem. 
So we got him to tell that whole story, um, his own personal journey through addiction, but we didn't use any visuals. Um, what we did is we just changed all the lighting in the room. It went from kind of uh, right at the darkest moment, the whole room was completely dark. You couldn't even see his human form. It was just the darkest part. And he told that story through the darkness and then it became sunrise again. It was really, it was really, really effective. It was so beautiful. Um, so I, I do think that there's times when visuals will detract, um, but that means you got to be better at, with your words. Um, if you're not going to rely on right, some right. picture to say right. what you're thinking, you need to be a stronger crafter of the words that are coming out. Uh, I can visualize that speech as you were you know, describing it, right? I can visualize him on stage. Nancy, yeah. you are a lot of things, right? You're, um, you're a wife, you're a mom, you're a business owner, you're an entrepreneur, author, scientist, you're a designer, a creator, an artist, but you're also a bit of a futurist, I would say, as well. I've known you fairly well for, gosh, almost a decade now. We've had a lot of time uh, once a year or so together. Where do yeah. you see the future of communication and persuasion is going? When you think about social and digital and the web and television and podcast and print books and audio books and and stand-up presentations, any advice you might tell us on kind of, I see the puck going here, so people start developing this skill. Yeah, it's funny, we, my firm, uh, we have our 30-year anniversary, I don't know if I told you that, this year, and most small businesses only last between four and five years. Those are actual statistics from the U.S. Um, Labor and Statistics Office, and um, my own shop has been through seven reinventions, which kind of makes sense, because if small businesses only last four to five years, we need to be reinventing ourselves in preparation for the future. So as our customers' desires change, we have to be at a new and different place than we are today. So I obsess about the future. I think I'm in the future so much, sometimes I get my verb tenses mixed up because <laughs> I obsess out there. So we're doing some really interesting thinking right now. Like I tried to find like communication.ai, is that available? What can we do to help aid people? How can technology help people become stronger communicators? What kinds of data can we collect that'll make um, conceptual ideas more accessible? Um, my, my latest body of work, interesting, because we've worked with the best, best brands in the world. It's just um, mind blowing. So I have 30 years worth of slides on a server and on Blu-rays here. And, I did this uh, really interesting exercise where I just lifted the data slides, just slides with a chart or some form of data. I lifted about 2000 of them and used that as a way to see if there's a way we can communicate in the future just by pulling um, best practices out and made another discovery that was super, um, super exciting about how do you overlace the parts of speech? What words were used with the data and why were those particular words used what were the verbs used? If we used that data to create action, verbs are action words. Well, what verbs were created? And it piled all up together to make this beautiful method for making a recommendation um, based on data. I went to those slides to look for patterns to try to help automate things in the future. Um, because I think the best thinking in the world starts with a slide. We're trying to visualize and communicate and persuade and get people to buy into our way of thinking. So we are trying to go to what data we do have, harvest and mine any of the insights from it that we can to try to help human flourishing in how we communicate and hopefully somehow automate that one day. I don't know if other 
small agencies are having to think this way. It might be just because we're here in the Valley, um, but we have a VR and an AR lab. Um, we meet with people. I'm meeting with all kinds of people that are using machine learning to help productivity. Um, so there's just so many things I'm anticipating coming here um, in the future. We need a way to communicate better. It's just, it's a zoo out there right now. So. <laughs> Nancy, congratulations we'll on your 30th anniversary. Let's talk a little bit about Duarte for a minute. So you're designed from your prolific publisher, by the way, to our audience, I recommend all these books. Like I mentioned, I curated every book on this, this um, set that I loved, and Nancy's four are on this set because they're powerful, they're practical, yeah. applicable. Nancy, clients can hire you as a, um, for their firm, right? To help with their story, their narrative, product launches, all sorts of things. But you also have in-house workshops where people can send their designer or someone in their firm. Talk a little bit about your programs that people can come and sign up for. And you also have a new one called, I think, Data Stories. Speak to that, if you will, as well. Uh, thank you. Yeah, so we have the agency, which is a service firm where if you have a big talk, you have to really kill it. We'll help construct it in a really meaningful way with a great arc. And because we've worked with people for 30 years, we've codified how we work and the best things that have worked and turned it into training so we could teach you how to do that. So we do have kind of some slide making courses, some visual thinking courses, and that's a lot of people that are in-house designers and stuff take those. But the real um, powerful courses are the ones that incorporate storytelling into your actual talk. So we have Resonate, um, which is based on that, the book where I did all the analysis of the great speeches. And then we also have um, Visual Story, which is a combination of kind of Resonate and Slideology. We have all kinds of online courses. And then we haven't come up with a new body of work um, for a while, um, like the Data Story course that I, I just built. Um, and then we also have delivery training as a group. So we're, um, we have a whole cadence of new products that are gonna be coming out on the, um, um, academy side, one for entrepreneurs and all kinds of stuff. So um, that's been, I just, there's something about when you create something and their eyes light up, they get real sparkly and you can tell that their life has changed because they learned a new skill. It's just so fun. Um, yeah, the data story I kind of touched on, um, it's, I've, I've, there's not been a course like this ever. It's part communicating up, part how to synthesize insights how to attach the right language to it to drive action, and then uh, communicating it in a way that executives process information. Um, so there's this hierarchy of story thinking and then also of uh, classic argumentation and counter argumentation um, that's kind of classic. It's, it's, it, this is a fun piece to write. I had so much fun and it's, um, it's kind of really rocking all the analytical people who deal with data all the time. Every role, 67% of role, of every role today um, has something to do with data. That's a lot. So we all need to learn how to how to synthesize the insights and communicate the findings from the data that we're dealing with. Uh, as we end, two points. One, I can highly recommend the Duarte firm as a, a great partner with you. We have a bit of a mutual admiration society between Franklin Covey and Duarte. You guys uh, have been so good to me. Nancy, and you but to us. Nancy, as you think about leaders, you know, uh, business leaders, profit, nor for-profit, not-for-profit, ecclesiastic, business, government, and you think about great leaders that are powerful communicators that, mm -hmm. you know, um, unleash you, that unstick you, or so to speak. Give us some final thoughts on what comes to mind. What are some of the, the skills and the aspirations that people should be thinking about if, if they want to leave today after watching this and be a more persuasive 
presenter, storyteller. Remind us some of the top things we should be building in our own tool set for the future. Yeah, that's a good question. I think the trick of effective and ineffective leadership is that you have the right emotional fuel at the right time not based on what you need, but based on what your audience needs. So to lead, I mean, there's the industry conferences and all of those things that are really important to nail and it's a formal stage to talk. But as a leader, the most important ones to nail are moving your own team en masse toward a new future. And those are the hardest ones to deal with too. So I think for me, what happens is I'm so far in the future, I can't sense the fact that my own team is clawing and trying to barely endure the battle they're currently in from the last initiative I just gave them. <laughs> I've already moved on to the new initiative, to the new future, all fired up, and they're just barely clinging on emotionally, and they've lost their way in even understanding why, I, why they're doing what they're currently doing. So I think making sure you know them empathetically enough to communicate the right thing at the right time at the right moment uh, to refuel them is probably the most important thing that a leader can do because i get pretty fired up about the future and i kind of live there all the time yet they're in the day-to-day -day really you know picking up the picking up the pieces and assembling the right things and getting the work done and and sometimes there's not a lot of alignment between the leader's emotional energy and where the people are at so making sure you empathetically understand that is important. That, that, um, there's good insights in my book, Illuminate, which my, was my last book with my co-author, Patty Sanchez. And we get into that a lot of the movement. We studied movements and we looked at the structure of them and they have their own story structure to them too. And so uh, leading is a lot like driving a movement. You're, you're driving change and transformation. And so we got a lot of insights from uh, movements. Um, which was really fun and how leaders led through movements. Nancy, our time is ending. Thank you so much for your generosity. Uh, I would hey. say I look forward to seeing you at the anniversary, but I'm not seeing the invite in my inbox, so I don't know what's going to happen <laughs> there. No, <laughs> delighted that you joined us today. We hope to have you back. So generous. Thanks so much. A lot to think about uh, as leaders helping people get unstuck and move forward. We're very grateful Thank to you. you. Thank you so much. And we appreciate all of you for joining our latest series for On Leadership, I remind you that every week we come back here to the set and have a new guest that joins us. We're so appreciative that this is now becoming one of the world's fastest growing, if not the fastest growing, leadership video interview series and podcast. Every week we post out on Tuesdays. We'd be so honored if you keep sharing it on your social media. Invite your family, your friends, your team to come. Every week it comes out in a digital newsletter and it includes an interview like today's with Nancy, as well as a downloadable tool and a blog that supports the article. It also comes out every week on your favorite podcast station. So thanks for joining us, and we will see you back next here on Franklin Covey's On Leadership. Thanks so much. <laughs>